0: Begin making way to the Gospel of Mark, we're going to be in chapter 5 this morning. We're picking up from where we all left off last week, this event that we're going to be looking at this morning it immediately happens after Jesus' and his disciples crossed the Sea of Galilee and they survived the storm. As you can see behind me, you can also find this passage Scripture in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we're going to use Mark because he gives us a little more details, but we'll pull from Matthew and Luke in our time this morning. Our passage this morning concerns Jesus meeting a pack of demons in possession of a man to which Jesus sends them into a herd of pigs. And the issue with Mark's account of this event is that it gets kind of clumpy and we'll, we'll reveal that and deal with that when we get there. Uh, the Gospel of Mark, just a little background on the Gospel, is written by a guy named John Mark. If you're familiar with the story in the book of Acts when Paul and Barnabas split ways, it was over a disagreement About John Mark because they took him on one mission trip and he wanted to go home and Paul didn't want to take him again but Barnabas wanted to and so Paul and Barnabas uh, split ways. Uh, He eventually becomes a companion of Peter the apostle, uh, also a companion of Paul's later on in scripture where it is widely believed and accepted that Peter dictated this gospel to Mark for him to write it down, possibly because Peter may have been illiterate. Uh, That's That's the thought. Uh, The gospel of Mark is the shortest gospel of all the gospels. It only contains about 16 chapters, so it's a pretty easy read if you want to read through it all in one sitting. And it makes sense that this gospel has a lot of action words, and Jesus is always on the move because we know that Peter was an action type of guy, even if he tended to do negative actions at times. We find this because the common word or phrase that's used in this gospel is immediately. We'll come across that in our own passage this morning. It's either read as immediately or at once. It was written to a wider church audience. And so uh, Gentiles were a part of this gospel, and it focuses heavily on discipleship. It focuses heavily on the identity and the teaching of Jesus Christ and how Jesus, throughout his ministry, even though he was the Jewish Messiah, he did, in fact, minister to Gentiles. Um, But Gentiles would not be grafted in to the covenantal family until the book of Acts. Since we have such a large passage of Scripture, let's jump right in, and then we'll walk through this together. "'Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, "'he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. "'And when he saw Jesus from afar, "'he ran and fell down before him. "'And crying out with a loud voice, he says, "'What do you have to do with me, Jesus, "'son of the most high God? "'I adjure you by God, do not torment me. "'For Jesus asked him, what is your name? "'And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. "'And he begged him earnestly "'not to send them out of the country.' And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from the region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he, being Jesus, did not permit him, but said to him, "'Go home to your friends,' And tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Let's pray together. Lord, we come before you and we submit to your authority, your sovereignty, your holiness. You are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of our devotion. You are worthy of our attention. So in this moment, I pray, Lord, that we just give you our our mind and our heart and our soul and all the strength that we have to love you, that we might hear your word speak to us, that we might be transformed more like you. We thank you for your grace, we thank you for your kindness and your mercy. We also thank you for your discipline. Knowing that your word tells us you only discipline us because you love us as children. Father, we want you to hear from you. We want to feel you move. We want to see you change people's lives. So, Lord, in the name of Jesus, I pray if there's someone here this morning that does not know Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior, that it would be revealed to them by you, and you would receive all the glory. Be with us as we walk through this passage of Scripture. I pray your spirit would just open it up to us so we may understand it and understand how it applies to us and how we should respond to it. We thank you once again for allowing us to be in your presence, and we pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So again, this event is directly tied to the calming of the storm, which takes place at the end of Mark chapter 4. The sea spoken of there in verse 1 is referring to the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Jesus and his disciples had set out to Capernaum, and they'd set to the region of Decapolis. We read that in verse 20. Their docking point has caused... Some issues, as people are trying to figure out exactly where this was taking place, we're told in Mark and Luke that it was the country of Garasenes, while Matthew says it was the country of Gadarenes. And while it may seem like this is a discrepancy or Scripture is disagreeing with it, all three are actually pointing to the same country and region in the area. We're told in verse 20 again that it is the region of Decapolis. What makes it even more difficult in figuring out the exact location of Jesus' settling or docking is that, that we, we're not quite sure about the town. There's a town in the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee called Gergesa. Since we're told in that area where Gergesa was, there were steep banks, it is believed that that is probably where this event takes place. In the 3rd century, there's actually an excavating uh, crew that went through, and they found a church underneath all the rubble. So this being the case, Gergesa is most likely the city to which Jesus landed. And Now, the word Decapolis literally means ten cities. There were ten major cities in this region, and Gergesa was one of them. But not only the location of this event, But to understand what type of people that Jesus is dealing with, considering the demon-possessed man, and also the herdsmen and the crowds that come in verse 14 through 17. Now, since they were herding pigs, we can come to the conclusion that these are not traditional Jews. In the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus chapter 11, verse 7, and in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 8, God deemed pigs unclean. And so his people could not deal with pigs. They could not eat pigs. They didn't shepherd pigs or farm for pigs. They were deemed unclean. If you came around a pig, then you would be deemed unclean. So we're most likely dealing in this passage of Scripture with Gentiles or Hellenistic Jews. And we can come to that conclusion because this region, this countryside, was heavily populated by the Roman Empire. So Jesus comes here and he comes across people he's not normally dealing with in the Jewish people. Now, Hellenistic Jews were Jewish people who began speaking in the Greek tongue and began adopting Roman Greco way of life. And so a traditional Jew would view a Hellenistic Jew on the same line as a Samaritan. They would be considered a half-breed. They would not be allowed into the temple to worship. They would not be allowed into the synagogues. They were basically outcast from the Jewish society because they had been committing adultery with another nation. Now, this isn't the first time that we've encountered Jesus ministering to people outside of the Jewish people, people that the Jews thought would be taboo. In John chapter 3, Jesus travels through Samaria. He comes across a woman at a well and begins a conversation with them. Interesting thing about John chapter 3 and here Mark chapter 5 is the reactions to Jesus. In John chapter 3, if you remember, we've already looked at it, Jesus tells this woman all about her life when she goes into town and tells everybody in town, hey, there's a guy at the well who just told me everything I've done. Could this possibly be the Messiah? So the whole town comes out to Jesus, excited to meet him, and they invite Jesus to stay with them for a period of time. Here in Mark 5, Jesus is again dealing with Gentiles and people outside the covenantal family, the traditional Jews. But their response to Jesus when they come to him is of complete fear and begging Jesus to leave the area. Now, as far as begging, there's a lot of begging going on in this passage. The demon-possessed man begged Jesus not to torment him in verse 7. He then begged Jesus not to send him out of the country in verse 10. The reason he probably didn't want to be sent out of the country, again, this is a a heavily uh, impacted area of the Roman Empire. There's a lot of idolatry going on. And so demons had a lot of free reign in this area because there wasn't the worship of the one true God. We're told that the demons proceeded to beg Jesus. To send them into the pigs in verse 12. When the townspeople in the countryside came out to see what all the huss and fuss was about, they begged Jesus to leave in verse 17. Finally, the man who was once possessed begs Jesus to take him with him in verse 18. So we could title this passage, A Bunch of Beggars. Now there's another issue we need to deal with before we unpack the Scripture in Mark and Luke's recording, there we are told there was one man who was possessed by multiple demons. In Matthew's recording of this event, he writes that there were two demon-possessed men. But the proper reading in the Gospel of Matthew is not speaking of two individuals being possessed, but rather a man oppressed by multiple demons. So therefore, all three accounts agree. Now, as I mentioned, Mark's account of this event is a little clumpy. In verse 1 and 2, Jesus and disciples arrive on the shore. And Mark uses his favorite word there in verse 2, immediately. They're immediately met by a man that was coming out of the tombs. And then what Mark does in verses 3 through 5 is he's led to give us a little background information on this man and then returns back to the series of events there in verse 6. So in other words, verse 3 and 5 here are like a side note. They're going to give us the backstory of this guy and what's been going on as he's been in this land and what he's been doing. And so verse 2 should actually, if we're wanting a series of events, flow right into verse 6. Now to say the man came out of the tombs there in verse 2 is to tell us that this man is living in a graveyard. These tombs would have been burial caves. So this man is living among the dead. Again, another taboo issue for a Jewish person. They did not go around things that were dead because they would make them unclean. But here's the image in verse 1 and 2. The disciples and Jesus are getting out of the boat, and they begin hearing a screaming, a roaring, a shouting. And can you imagine their thoughts? You know, here we go again. It just never ceases to end. They remember they just got off the boat where they were just being thrashed around in a sea on a storm, and Jesus calmed it. But they feared for their lives, and now they come on land and they see this man running towards them, who is spiritually in chaos because of the demon possession that is over him. And it ties to something we mentioned last week. Just want to reiterate: ministry is ongoing. In fact, it is never going to end until we arrive to our eternal home. As long as we breathe breath, (laughs) breathe air, we are to be doing ministry. Even when we have a successful ministry that ends, we prepare for the next thing. It is an ongoing process. Again, the background of this individual in verses 3 and 5. He lived among the dead. He had been cast out of society. Most likely for fear that he would harm somebody. He showed a supernatural strength and that when he was bound, he would break his shackles and chains. It got to the point that no one in the town or the countryside could handle him. They could not subdue him. So they were going to leave him alone. Let him die out there, which is what the demons were wanting to do. And that's with the cutting of the stones, they're slowly tormenting him. They're slowly torturing him. This guy is right out of a horror movie, though. And I'm guessing that if any of us would have come across this individual in this particular situation, we would be scared for our lives. The images: is they step out of the boat, they hear a roaring, a shouting, they look up, and here is this man running straight towards them. He is charging them. If I was a disciple, get back in the boat, right? And it gets worse, which we'll come back here in a second. This man... Could not be bound physically. Mark tells us that in verse 3 through 5. But he was bound spiritually, which tells us to be without Jesus is to be bound spiritually. If Jesus is not in your life, he is not the king of your heart, if the Holy Spirit does not dwell in your soul, then the Bible says that you are still in your sins, and you are a prisoner to what the Bible refers to as the flesh, a prisoner of righteousness. Any individual without Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and Holy Spirit within them is a prisoner of unrighteousness. The Bible uses the term slave when referring to this imprisonment. In Romans chapter 6, Paul is led to point out that we are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Righteousness. And if anyone is not in Christ, they are slaves of sin, they are slaves of impurity, and slaves to lawlessness. The Bible also tells us in the book of Galatians that we are no longer a slave if we are found in Christ, because we are now a son, and that word son isn't speaking of like males, it's it's you are now a child. You belong to God, and if you're a son or a child of God, then you're an heir through God. But as God's people, we have to understand in Christ, we are to be slaves to Christ, We are to be obedient to what God says in His Word, and as we encounter people who are not in Christ, we have to understand that they are slaves to their sinful nature. They are much like this demon-possessed man. They cannot control their impulses. They cannot control their sinful nature. And don't hear me. I'm not saying that people without Christ are all demon-possessed, but they have no defense against the enemy. They are out there fighting a battle they cannot win. And just as Jesus comes to this land, and by the way, Jesus never does anything in Scripture by accident. He came here to set this man free. And so now we get to stand if we are found in Christ, in the promise of God's Word, where he says, For freedom, Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Coming back to the passage, I wish I could have seen the disciples' faces. There's a lot of these passages where I, I wish I could see the people's response. You sometimes get their words, but to see their facial expressions, their body language. They climb out of the boat. They're screaming and howling. They see this man charging right out them. Even though this man came towards them with this temper tantrum, which was caused by the demons inside of him, did you notice what he does there in verse 6? He saw Jesus from afar. He ran and he fell down before him the meaning is that even though the demons were in possession of this man they bowed before Jesus they showed no matter how strong they appeared to be no matter how much fear they put in other people's hearts when they came in the presence of Jesus they recognized true power and true authority and he continues to scream he continues to scream towards Jesus in his question in verse 7 what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you, which means I beg you, by God, do not torment me. The first question could be read as this, why are you interfering with me? What do you want with me? He's basically coming before Jesus and bowing in reverence, but he's wanting Jesus to state his business in the area. And at the same time, he knows that Jesus has come to deal with the demons The phrase, Most High God, is the most frequent term from the Old Testament to refer to the God of Israel. See, these demons, they know who Jesus was. They were not idiots on who he is and who stood before them. They knew Jesus as their creator. Demons know Jesus as their creator. And that might sound weird to think of, but here's what the Bible says in Colossians chapter 1. He, being Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So the image here is these demons run towards Jesus. They fall down in reverence. They ask him a question. They're looking into the eyes of their creator, knowing that there's going to be a time that their creator is going to be their ultimate destroyer. This is what the meaning of the plea to is at the end of verse 7. He's asking Jesus, Jesus, swear in the name of God, swear in the name of your Father that you will not torture me. Luke's understanding was that the demon was aware of his ultimate demise as legion begged Jesus not to send him into the abyss. Matthew also had this understanding as the demons were asking Jesus not to be sent to the place of torment or torture before it was their time to go there. What this means is Satan and his demons know their ultimate demise, which is depicted in Revelation chapter 20. What we learn from this encounter is that the enemy is aware of the authority of Jesus. When Jesus asked for his name... We can just read over that in verse 9. What that means is that it is a proclamation of authority over another. Tell me your name. It is a command. Now the name legion is a term used for a Roman garrison, about 5,000 to 6,000 soldiers. That doesn't mean this man had 5,000 to 6,000 demons in him. What he's revealing to Jesus and what we get revealed through the scriptures is he has multiple demons in him. This is a grave situation. Here in a passage, when the demons bowed down before Jesus, it was an act of a submission. It's like when you have a dog that gets in trouble and it tucks its tail. That's what the demons are doing. They put so much fear in people's lives, but when they see Jesus, they tuck their tail. They bow down before him because they know that he is the ultimate authority. When the demons beg to be thrown into the pigs, it's because they understood only Jesus has the authority to do whatever he wants with them. Satan and his demons are aware of who is in control, but until God's full sovereignty and full reign come, they're going to pretend that they're in control. And so they're going to make a bunch of noise. They're going to cause a bunch of chaos. And a lot of those times we see that it played out in the news, we have to remember that God is in control, and even better, if we're a child of God, we are sealed by him. We belong to him. And the scripture says nothing can separate us from him and from his love. If you're a child of God, and here's a promise, because this, this can be a scary passage of scripture. Here's, here's the promise we find in scripture. Satan and his demons cannot possess you. And the reason they cannot possess you is because the Holy Spirit is already inside of you and already fills you. There's no room for them. All Satan and his demons can do for us now is to bring Temptations which caused us to live disobedient towards God. But praise the Lord, we found the mercy and the grace of God. With the begging of the demons to be cast into pigs, Jesus gives them permission there in verse 13. It's caused a massive stampede, stampede of piggies over a steep bank. I'm told there were almost 2,000 of them. The demons destroyed the pigs because that was the purpose they wanted to do with the man, but they wanted to torture him. They wanted to drive it out as long as, pa- as possible. And then in verse 14, we're, de- we're introduced to some bystanders Are there. They're herdsmen. These would have been the individuals that have been responsible for the pigs. Again, since they're herding pigs, these can't be Jews. These have to be Gentiles. And as they stand there and they watch their livelihood plunge to their death and drown in the sea, they... De- Take off to the city. They take off to the country. and start telling people of what they just saw and what had just happened. And when they return in verse 15, they see this man who was once possessed by these many demons, and he's sitting there clothed and in his right mind. And this makes verse 2 even more horrific, because to say that he was clothed implies that in verse 2, he was not Can you imagine getting out of the boat now? You get out of the boat, you hear some screaming, you hear some growling, you see this naked, raging man coming at you who's got cuts all over his body, his eyes are probably bloodshed from lack of sleep, he probably has dark rings under them, and he's coming right at you, roaring. Let's get back in the boat. (laughs) But Jesus stood his ground. as the crowds gather. They see this man, and he was popular for the wrong reasons, right? They see this man that they known to be the man that howls in the night, the man that lives in the graveyard. But now they see him, and it says that he's in his right mind, which means that he is completely sane. And his posture is that he's sitting at the feet of another man, whom they do not know, but that posture is the posture of discipleship. We have to keep in mind as herdsmen are out telling people about what happened and drawing the crowd to come and see this. We're not given a time frame of how long this man sat at the feet of Jesus. And I wish we would have gotten some scripture of that, but I imagine there was some very interesting conversation. Verse 16 is telling us that the crowd's gathered. And the event's... Were being described to them. That that word described in the Greek means they were being detailed out over and over again. So everybody understood what was going on. And oddly enough, it as it's detailed out. It says, What happened to the demon-possessed man? So the crowd's talking about this. This is the demon-possessed man. He's now sane, he's clothed, praise the Lord, and he's at the feet of another. And then they also talked about the pigs. And the way the Greek is worded, it means the crowds were just as concerned about the transformation in this man as they were about these pigs, which tells us that worldly people only have worldly concerns, meaning they're only concerned with themselves. People are not in Christ is what I mean by worldly people, and they're only concerned about themselves and how outside forces may impact their livelihood. People of this world cannot see the big picture. They cannot see that there is, in fact, a spiritual battle going on around them all of the time. They cannot perceive the fact that Jesus Christ has won the ultimate victory. They cannot comprehend that they are, in fact, a sinner. And that sin is separating them from God. Now, I I was curious. So I'm obviously not a, a pig farmer or anything like that. I wanted to look up and see how much a pig goes for these days, a whole pig. And to put it in, give us a little understanding why the crowds acted maybe the way they did. So a whole pig today, according to the Internet, which is probably always right, goes for about $750 to $800. If we kept it on the lower end, so around $750, then the standards today of the herdsman's loss... $1.5 $1.5 million. And you read this story, Peter probably doesn't like this story, but that's a lot of pork and bacon going down to two. But what it reveals to us, worldly people are worried about worldly things. But this passage reveals is God is more concerned for the human being than the animal. Jesus came to die for the sins of people. And in sending the demons into pigs, Jesus reveals God's value system. And that we are always to value people. We are always to value their souls. We're always to be concerned about their eternal destination over anything else, be it possessions or money. The begging of the people to leave for Jesus to leave is for two reasons. First off, in this particular area, pigs were a delicacy. They were controlled by the Roman Empire. And you did not eat a pig unless you had wealth. And so whoever was the owner of these pigs was a very important individual. He had a lot of wealth in this delicacy. And now these herdsmen, who are only in charge of taking, of, of taking care of the pigs, have to explain to their boss how they all died. Not an easy conversation. Secondly, This demon-possessed man was wreaking havoc in the area, and we were told in Scripture that no one could subdue him. No one could bound him or bind him and control him, but now he sits at the feet of a man who simply spoke the words, and he was subdued. They most likely were afraid about the loss and how to define it and how to explain it, but they're also afraid of the power and authority of Jesus Who could do what none of them could do? This then brings us to an interesting part of our passage in verses 18 or verse 19 and 20. Or, sorry, 18 through 20. As he was getting into the boat, that's Jesus, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he, again Jesus, did not permit him, but said to him, Go to your home. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has mer- had mercy on you and when he went away and he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled This man wanted to be with Jesus He actually begged to go with Jesus just like the demon in him or demons in him begged to go into the pigs But what did Jesus say no. He told him no. And it's a nice little sub-point that sometimes God is going to say no to our beggings. Sometimes God is going to say no to our requests and our prayers. But just as we see with this man, when God does such a thing, there's always a reason. And we have to remember God's no is still an answer to our prayer seems odd, though, because up to this point, we've seen Jesus in His ministry, and He's been recruiting people to come and to be His disciples, and this man's request was genuine. He truly wanted to remain with Jesus. He wanted to learn from Him. But there's two things we have to understand on Jesus' telling this man, no. The first is the underlining thing. This man was most likely a Gentile. And even if he was a Hellenistic Jew, he would have been deemed unclean and impure by the Jewish society. And so for Jesus to take this man with him, Jesus would have created a stumbling block to the Jewish people. They would have saw him, and they would have recognized Jesus as dealing with an unclean individual. And we know in Scripture that Jesus came first to be the Savior and the Messiah to the Jews. So this man would have been created a stumbling block. He would not be grafted into the family of God until the book of Acts, through the ministries Peter, Philip, and Paul. And Paul had to deal with the same issue with his own disciple, Timothy. Now, Paul did not believe that circumcision was something you had to be in order, order to be saved, but he also understood that when he goes to cities, and you look through the book of Acts, when Paul goes to cities, he either goes straight to the synagogue or straight to where the Jewish people are gathering. He wanted to take the gospel first to them, and then he took them to the Gentiles in the city. And if Timothy remained uncircumcised, that would have kept Paul from going into the synagogues where the Jewish people gathered. That would have kept Paul from going into the, tim- into the tem- pim- temple. So Timothy, if he wanted to be with Paul in the ministry, then he was going to have to be circumcised as a Jew, and there would have been other purification rites he would have to go through. And I always had that question, and the people asked, well, how would they know? How would they know if someone was circumcised or not? And I don't I don't really have a good answer. I I it could be an awkward coat check. <laughs> Certificate of authenticity? Most likely because of the Old Testament, they had at least two or three witnesses who could verify that they were in fact a Jew. The underlying issue here, and why Jesus didn't allow this man to accompany him is he's Most likely a Gentile. And Jesus didn't want to create that stumbling block. He was already having stumbling blocks. But the other issue, which is revealed to us in Scripture, is Jesus had something for this man to do. Look there in verse 19. He says, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And that word friends in the Greek means go to your own people, go to your family. He was commanded to go home. I imagine that was a place he hadn't been to in a very long time. Here we have the first Gentile evangelist sharing what God had done and the mercy he had received in his life by being spared and redeemed. And then we're told in verse 20, what did he do? Exactly what Jesus told him to. He obeyed. And this is how it relates to us. We are called to share what the Lord has done. As Jesus has revealed his authority over this pack of demons and the authority of Jesus Christ, he has now commissioned and commanded his people to go. You read of that in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. We're to go out into the world as representatives of Jesus Christ to share that we have been rescued ourselves. From the chains of sin, we go out to share that we have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We have been redeemed from the clutches of the enemy, and we now rest in the love of the Father. We are to share that we have been given a new purpose for life. That we are to continue to proclaim the gospel, to be the light and the salt of this earth. What's also interesting is this man understood who Jesus was. Jesus says to go and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you, in verse 19. And he knows what the man does. He goes and he proclaims how much Jesus had done for him. So it makes me wonder, in that conversation that they had while the herdsmen were getting the city people in the countryside, if Jesus revealed to this man that he was in fact God in the flesh, and this man accepted it as truth, and so instead of just saying, what the Lord has done for me. He understood the equality with Jesus and said, this is what Jesus has done for me. We serve a very great God. And that great God came in the form of a man. And he lived a perfect life according to the word of God. He died on the cross to take our punishment. He rose from the grave that we might find forgiveness and be given eternal life. And if we've accepted that truth, then we now wait for the glorious day when He is going to return and take us all home. But until that day comes, until He calls us home, or until we breathe our very last breath on this planet, we are to be going and to telling people how much the Lord has done for us and the mercy we have found in Him. This is the gospel we preach, and there may be some people here this morning that need to accept this gospel. Is that God created the heavens and the earth, but he also created you for a relationship with him. And it is your sin that is separating you from that relationship. And if that sin problem is not dealt with, you will be separated from God forever and eternity. And what the Bible refers to as a place called hell. But God doesn't want that for you. And that's why he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to this earth. To do the things I just mentioned that he did. He paid the price on the cross in full. That's why Jesus said, it is finished. He breathed his last breath, and they placed him in a tomb. But three days later, he walked out of that tomb. And he did that to show that he has the power and authority to forgive you for your sins, past, present, and future. And he has the authority to grant you eternal life. But it begins by admitting your sinner to God, believing that Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose again, and confessing you need it. If you're here this morning and you've yet to make that confession of faith, we're going to have this time of invitation, and I'm going to ask you to come down. You can just sit in the front row. I'll sit by you, you and say, Pastor Mike, I need to be saved. Let this be the day of your salvation. But if we've already done that, brothers and sisters in Christ, we've got work to do. We've got people that need to hear about Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your love and your mercy and your kindness. Thank you, Lord, how you reveal over and over again your power, your authority. Your sovereignty. Forgive us, Lord, when we don't bow down before that, when the demons do. Lord, if there's someone here this morning that needs to accept you as their Lord and Savior for the first time, the only time, I pray that your Spirit would move upon their heart, and they would know they need to respond by coming down. We ask your forgiveness if we failed you in any way, and ask your kingdom and will continue to be done. We praise You in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.